We're back in Genesis this morning. And I'll let you know now that between when the time in which I put together the outline and submitted it to Cinda, a few things changed. So uh, just it'll make sense, I think, when we're done. So, all right. Genesis 32, verses 1 through 21. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanium. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants and female servants. I have sent to tell my lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you. And there are four hundred men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking, if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all of the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please, deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered uh, for for multitude. So he stayed there at night. And from what he had he took with him, he took a present for his brother Esau. 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams. Thirty milking camels and their calves, forty cows and ten bulls, twenty female donkeys and ten male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself. And he said to its servants, Pass on ahead of me, and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, When my brother, when Esau my brother meets you and asks you, To whom do these belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, They belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and third and all who followed the droves. And you shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, Moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. And afterward, I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. Let's pray. Father, 
Help us to receive your word like the Thessalonians did. Not as if it were the word of man, but as if it were the word of God, which it really and truly is. Help us to submit our minds, our affections, and our wills to its authority. Help us to rejoice in the hope that we have in Christ as he is revealed to us in the gospel that we might turn from our idols to serve the living and true God through faith and love. In the name of Christ, our Savior, through faith in his incarnation, his obedience, his death, and his resurrection. Amen. Back in 2004, Amy and I had one of those experiences that we wish never to repeat, and that was a hurricane. We're in pretty good footing here in Arizona. I don't think a hurricane is going to find us, but you just never know where we might end up at some other point in time. We had missed the first hurricane, Charlie, and uh, we had survived the second one, and then comes the third one. It struck in the middle of the night, awakening us. And I remember, uh, you know, being awake and being in the kitchen, you know, we couldn't sleep, and Amy's making coffee to try and stay awake, and, and that's when the dripping started. Not the dripping of the coffee. The dripping of the water from the vent in the kitchen. We knew that something was not quite right with the house, but we didn't know exactly what it was, and I know I wasn't going outside in a hurricane to look and see what had happened to our roof. We were filled with fear. It was about that time that we started to see, because it was still dark, the flashes of light from the transformers. I thought we were in Baghdad or something like that, a war zone with these bombs going off. You could hear the sounds in the distance, and it wasn't much longer after that that the power went out. Even more fear. So what did we do? We grabbed an old hymn book, and in what light we could see, we began to sing some hymns. What we experienced in the midst of the storm was both fear and faith. That is what is common to us in the Christian experience. Uh, When we encounter difficulties, we experience both a measure of fear and a measure of faith. I don't think any of us would say that we never experience fear. We experience it. But because if we know Christ, we also should have a measure of faith. These things are mixed. And in Jacob, as he begins to re-enter the promised land, he is a mixture of both fear and faith. Just like us. Our big idea this morning is that God keeps his covenant to protect his people. Let's start with the idea that walking with God will lead you in through difficult circumstances. Let's do a little recap. We haven't been here in a little while, so let's remember what we've already gone through. Jacob had left the promised land after cheating his brother, who then proceeded to threaten his life. He was gone 20 years in a faraway land. God had told him after those 20 years that it was time for him to return to the land that he had promised. We had just, right before this in the previous chapter, is that God has been protecting him and did protect him from Laban, who was chasing him, and one angry guy. Okay? So, but he's going from one angry man 
to another angry man. Okay? This is way back when. He has not been in contact with his brother through the phone. There's been no video chats. There's been no instant messages or texts or anything like that. He has not seen nor spoken to his brother in 20 years. And the last thing he knew, his brother was saying, I can't wait to kill him. You've got to keep that in mind as we think about this. But we also have to keep in mind that Jacob is, in some sense, reaping exactly what he sowed. He deceived his father. He cheated his brother. There's some sense in which Esau has a legitimate beef. The conflict is a result of Jacob's own scheming. Let's put this back in a context of the original audience that got this book. Like Jacob, they were going back into the promised land so that God would do good to them. They were not going on their own initiative. They were going just as Jacob because God had, had visited them in Egypt and had called them and brought them out of Egypt into this place. Just as God had stopped Laban from destroying Jacob and his family, God had stopped Pharaoh from destroying the Israelites at the Red Sea. In fact, he destroyed Pharaoh's army at the Red Sea. Okay, those the parallels, because these parallels are important to keep in mind as we think about this. The Israelites are to consider their own entrance into this promised land. And as they stand on the brink of it, they, they have to know a couple of things. And one is that in that land, there are enemies. They're not going to be welcomed with, with open arms. They're not going to find a, a, you know, a completely empty land that they can go into and, and just explore on their own and build. There are people there that don't like them. They're going to resist God's purpose and God's plan. Not only that, but in order to get in that promised land, they're going to have to go by Edom the descendants of this Edom. And there's going to be a family grudge, and they have to know exactly how to kind of deal with all of this should they be afraid of their ancient relatives. So, we see that walking, from, from their experience, that walking by faith does not exempt us from afflictions. In fact, it actually guarantees that we will experience some hardship and difficulty. We may be reaping what we sow, just like Jacob. There are times when your sin will produce consequences, relational consequences in your life. can't help but think of the, the very beginning of the movie, The Patriot, with uh, Mel Gibson. It begins with that comment, I have long feared that the sins that I have committed would find me. In fact, in the, in the rest of that movie, it's in a sense, it's as if his fears, his sins had found him as he, his family is destroyed by the actions that take place during the Revolutionary War. Our sin will find us. It, the consequences will find us. We cannot escape them completely. So sometimes that relational difficulty is caused by our own sin. 
Sometimes our faith may be met with hostility by those who don't believe. Think of Tim Tebow. Okay? We've all seen him on TV recently. You can't avoid Tim Tebow. And he's done nothing wrong. He has been bold about his faith. Okay? God has placed him in a place in which he has the opportunity to speak, and he does speak about this. But there's much hatred in certain circles precisely because that he represents Jesus. Sometimes that'll be us. Sometimes those struggles are meant to purify and to deepen our faith. From 1 Peter chapter 1, he mentions them, you have been grieved by various trials so that, okay, purpose, the, the tested genuineness of your faith, okay, they, they test them to, sh- the, te- the, the trials are testing their faith to show that it is genuine, that it is more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So ultimately, it's to the glory of God, but it is for the testing of the genuineness of our faith, for the removing of the impurities of our faith, one of which is our fear. So walking with God will lead us into difficult circumstances. It doesn't mean we get a trouble-free life, and that's not a bad thing. That's the first part. Let's get more into the text. That's more of a big picture look at the text. That fear clouds our perception and corrupts our choices. The text begins in a rather strange way because, verse 1, Jacob went on his way and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanim. That's it. It's like it's almost like, wait a minute, what did he just say? <laughs> you could miss it if you're not looking, if you're not paying attention. Jacob meets God's angels. What happened when he left? Before he left the promised land and he was in that place, Bethel, outside of Bethel, <coughs> what he saw in a dream was the ziggurat in which God's angels ascended and descended. He left to the vision of angels. Now he's going to re-enter to the vision of angels. He needs to keep in mind that God has his angels, uh, to quote an old Amy Grant song, watching over him. Okay, But it's real. As it talks about in Hebrews, they are ministers to those who receive salvation. He has a glimpse into the unseen world. In both of these instances, he leaves and as he's coming back, and he's to be reminded that God has always been sending his blessings to Jacob. Messed up Jacob. And God will continue to bring his blessings to messed up Jacob. Think for a moment. I mentioned about the Israelites moving into the promised land after the Exodus. What happens in Joshua chapter 5? They're getting ready to lay siege upon Jericho. And Joshua lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. 
Let the, in other words, let the battle begin. It was not just the armies of Israel that were fighting in the conquest of the promised land. It was also the armies of God. Think for a moment of 2 Kings chapter 6. Elisha and his servant are surrounded by a vast army. His servant is filled with fear. Then Elijah prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. In other words, there's something that Elijah is able to see that his servant does not see, and the text reveals that. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elijah. He and his servant weren't alone. The army of God was surrounding them. He need not fear the enemy. That's what's happening in those quick two little verses, essentially, of chapter 32. Because the word camp there, which is found, is the idea of an encampment, an army encampment. He's not just come across angels frolicking with little harps. He has met the armies of God who are for him. Second thing he does is that he sends messengers, which is the same word as angels in the Hebrew. He sends these messengers to his brother Esau to announce his arrival. And here is where the problem starts. This is where his fear begins to cloud his judgment. Because if we think back, do a, re, you know, do, do a rewind on what happened, when not just even before he cheated his brother, the promise that was given to their mother that the older will serve the younger, that the promise was going to be not through Esau, but it was going to be through Jacob, okay? And then even with the blessings that they both received from their father, there was, there was in the midst of Esau's blessing, which wasn't much of a blessing, but uh, that he would serve his younger brother, okay? Despite that, Jacob says, Call Esau my Lord, and that I am his servant. Now, on the one hand, you can look at this and go, you know, he's just trying not to put a stick in Esau's eye, you know. But you can do that. You say, my brother, I'm back. He's, he's speaking in a way contrary to what God had revealed their relationship would actually be. Okay? He's saying, You are my Lord, I am your vassal. The messengers return with news that Esau is coming, and he's coming with 400 men. How would you receive that? (laughs) Okay, my brother swore to kill me. He says he's coming. He's got 400 guys, and he's in a big hurry. Now, really, if we, if we take back and look at this rationally, if Esau was going to kill him, he probably wouldn't send the messengers back. He probably would have killed them and just come with his 400 guys and killed Jacob, right? But Jacob, due to the fear in his heart, 
interprets this in the, the worst possible way, that Esau is actually coming to kill him. And the Bible says that he was greatly afraid and distressed. Jacob thinks his world is falling apart, that everything that he has gained is about to be swept away from him. He has taken his eyes off of God and the encampment of angels that he just saw. Fear does that. It blinds you to who God is and what He has promised to do. That's part of what fear does. Okay? Think about fear for the Exodus generation. Okay? They're ready to go into the promised land. They're, they're, they're ready to be obedient and they send those spies into the promised land and the spies come back and all but two are like, there's giants in the land. There's no way we can do this. Wait a minute. Didn't we see God destroy Pharaoh? What do you mean it won't happen? What do you mean we should be afraid? This is exactly what God told us to do. He loves us. Let's move forward, said Jacob, uh, Joshua and Caleb. Fear blinded that generation to the God who had delivered them at the Red Sea, to the God who had gotten them out of Egypt. As if somehow now God is too short. He can only save us over there in Egypt. He can't save us in the land that he promised to us. That's what fear does. We forget what God has done and what God has promised to do. Jacob fears man. He thinks that Esau can destroy him. That's just one way that we can fear people. Now I'm stealing from Ed Welch this little formula here, that fear is usually combined with unbelief and disobedience. Where you find fear, you're going to find in your heart some measure of unbelief. Okay, Because now you're forgetting who God is. You're not believing the promises. You're not relying upon His character. You're not relying upon the gospel of Jesus Christ at that moment. Okay, to the, to the degree that you have fear, that is true. And because of that, you will be disobeying. You'll be like those Israelites. Well, we're not going in the promised land now. Forget it, man. There's giants in there. Disobeying the command of the Lord. When we are filled with fear, we will inevitably disobey what God has told us to do. Okay? Um, it's not like Star Wars. You know, faith... I mean, sorry, fear leads to hate, which leads to the dark side. No, fear leads to unbelief, which leads to disobedience. It's much worse than you think. Okay? So, in what ways do you fear man? This is something that is common to all of us. We all have it in some measure, some form. None of us is exempt from this. We, we can't throw stones at Jacob and, oh, that, that guy... I'm so much better than him. No, we, we struggle with the same thing. We can struggle for, we fear man by seeking approval from others. That is a form, a manifestation of the fear of man, needing to have another person's approval. They can operate in terms of shame. Being afraid that people will find out what I, what I do or what thoughts I have in my mind, the sin that I commit. We can live in a fear of man like that as well, that people will find out who we really are. We can live in a fear of man such that, <coughs> excuse me, rejection 
particularly as we seek to, we don't proclaim the gospel as often as we ought perhaps because we're afraid that people will not just reject Jesus, but also reject us. And so these are ways in which the fear of man can arise in our hearts and lead us into greater disobedience. And so the question is, how do you self-protect when the fear arises in your heart? How do you protect yourself instead of going to Jesus Christ and the gospel? Because that's the choice. Either you're going to bring those fears to God, or you're going to try and resolve them yourself in some way of protecting yourself, which will bring you to a bad place. What does Jacob do? First, Jacob hedged his bets. Instead of relying fully upon God, the, the, the God who has done all of this stuff for him and whose angels he has just seen, he splits his family into two, thinking if Esau comes, he, he may destroy one camp, but the other camp will live. And he was probably thinking in the back of his mind, if one's going to be destroyed, may it be Leah. May it not be my beloved Rachel, okay? Hedging his bets. He's not trusting. Previously, I had this next section under the third part in terms of faith and restitution, but as I looked at this, I see I just can't put it there. Some commentators want to put Jacob, uh, yeah, Jacob sending the gift as an act of faith, but I can't help but see it as an act of fear. He sends Esau this rather large gift, and the word for gift can also be translated tribute, which fits in well with the fact that he has called him his Lord. He is submitting, in a sense, to his brother, which is contrary to the promise and the command of God that we saw earlier on in Genesis. And so he's living out of fear that Esau can destroy him instead of in the faith of God's promise. And so I see this. His vision is clouded. Okay? Now, there are times when restitution is good. Okay, what restitution is, is when you find it in the Old Testament, it's when you pay back that which you have taken from another unrighteously. And usually there's a little more in there. When I was a kid, my cousin and I would go bowling. We were in a bowling league for a while. Saturday mornings, Lita Lanes. Okay? Candlepin bowling, and I think only one of you in this room knows what that is. Uh, but don't worry about that. Well, you know, what's at the bowling alley? Video games, man. And, like, sodas and ice cream. And, you know, we all got, like, a, a soda and a thing of chips for part of our price. But, you know, we're kids. We wanted more. How can we get more without asking mom and dad? And one of my, one of my older brothers had this huge mug filled with quarters. What do you think we enterprising young chaps did? We would take, oh, you know, I want to be able to do this. We'd take a couple of bucks a week. Okay? And so, you know, at one point, I think my father asked, are any of your friends going into your brother's room and stealing money out of, you know, change from him? <laughs> anyway, years later, I became a Christian, you know. It bothered me. So I sent my brother a check for $100, and I hoped it covered. And I told him what I did. 
I owned up to my, my sin. There's a sense in which restitution can be a very good and a very important thing, but that doesn't seem to be why he's doing this. He's speaking about this in terms of appeasing his brother, a word which can also be translated to propitiate, to atone for. He's not relying upon God for the forgiveness of his sins, but he's relying in part upon this gift for the forgiveness of his sins. He is, he is rightfully afraid of provoking Esau, but he is living like the promise isn't true. And therefore, I see fear here, not faith in his actions. Later on, in the beginning of the text we're going to look at next week, he separates himself from his family. And so fear will isolate you from the community. This is what fear does. But gospel-centered faith relies upon God to protect, and it will lead us you know, into community. Recognition that we need community. Before the power went out, what Amy and I did when, before we were singing our, our hymns is we picked up the phone and called some family and said, this storm is nasty. Pray for us. We knew we needed it. We reached out. And so in, in addition to us praying, we asked others to pray for us. And so fear, which is not remedied by faith, will actually lead us into disobedience because of unbelief. Let's get to the good stuff. Okay. By faith, use God's appointed means for your protection. He has appointed something for us. Just as it says in in the 1 Corinthians 10, that you know, no temptation has seized you except that which is common to man, and he has provided a way out. Sometimes that way out is running, just as Paul told Timothy. Flee the evil desires of youth. But sometimes there are other means, and one of them is right here. Prayer. Jacob's faith... Okay, He's not all fear. He's got a little bit of faith left. His faith is expressed in this one thing, this one thing which sets a pattern for Israel and also sets a pattern for us because we see this even in Philippians chapter 4. Don't be anxious about anything, but in all things do what? Pray. Jacob did what he was supposed to do. And if that was all he did, it would have been a whole lot better for him. Okay? But pray. Jacob calls out to God in the midst of his distress. And what we find here in, in, in this passage is the longest prayer in Genesis. We don't find that many prayers in Genesis, but this is the longest one that we find. And there's a few things I want to say about this prayer that we need to keep in mind. Okay? And the first thing is that this prayer is covenantal, meaning it's in keeping with God's covenant. He starts off, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. And later, he says, but you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. He is praying 
in light of the promise that was given to Abraham back in Genesis 12, which was then given to his father Isaac before Abraham died, and now has been passed on to him. He is praying in light of God's covenant. He's saying, keep it. You've made these promises to me, and I need you to keep those promises. He pleads before God. We are to keep in mind as Christians the covenant with Abraham, because we see that we are joined together in that in Galatians, but also it really is ultimately a function of that eternal covenant. Hebrews 13, just kind of mentions briefly, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. And it goes on. We are to pray in light of the eternal covenant God has made with, with us through his son, Jesus Christ. That's how we pray. So we pray in a covenantal fashion, but we also pray in a scriptural fashion. Now, of course, he didn't have the Bible. There wasn't a book of the Bible yet, because this is the first book of the Bible. However, what he is praying is based upon God's commands. He's, he's about to obey. He's like, you told me to leave. You told me to come. You said you'd do good to me. And now there's this problem, my brother Esau, of whom I am afraid. Okay. He's, he's praying based upon God's commandments that he might obey God's commandments. Recognizing that there are elements of our obedience that are outside of our control. Help me to do this. Okay. I experienced this for a few years, kind of in my transition period. Uh, you know, if a man does not take care of his family, you know, he's worse than an unbeliever. I have a responsibility to take care of my family. And yet, I found that I was unable to take care of my family the way I thought I should. Lord, I need your help. Open a door for me to be able to do it. I'm not asking you to just dump money out of the sky. I want to work. I need your help to find some place to work. Similar to this. Okay? And so it's covenantal, it's scriptural, it's also humble. Jacob says, I am not worthy, and he is not Garth and Wayne, okay? For those of you who are really hip, right? And, and Alice Cooper is nowhere in this, in this thing, okay? But he's humbling himself before God. I'm not saying that you should do this because I'm worthy, because I'm deserving, because I've got my act together. In fact, it's quite the opposite. I'm looking for mercy here. He is, in a sense, finally perhaps recognizing that he has failed, that he has sinned, that his disobedience has brought a lot of this stuff on him. In other words, he's finally getting it. And next week, he's really going to get it. Okay? It will become completely clear to him kind of what's going on. All right? But do we own up to our personal failures? Because a refusal to, to repent and to own up to those failures will hinder our prayers. Sometimes the reason we're not praying is because we are not repenting. Okay? 
So it's, it's covenantal, it's scriptural, it's, it's humble, it's also grateful. Because he recognized God's past faithfulness. He says, you know, I left this land and all I had was a staff in my hand. And I got a picture of that yesterday. We're at the library and here comes this guy riding a bike. And he's got this really old dog and this wagon that he is somehow connected to his bike. And that was all of his worldly possessions. It's everything he had, including the little tent and the, and the little pack kind of hanging off the back of the wagon. That's all he had. That was Jacob. He had nothing. He left the promised land with nothing, but he says, I'm coming back and I've got enough people and possessions for two camps. Why? Not because I'm smart, not because I'm enterprising and hardworking. By golly, people like me. You have done this. You have blessed me. And I am grateful. And so he, his prayer is also grateful. But then he, he ends it with this idea, please deliver me. It sounds like a, 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 a concise version of Psalm 27, which we already read. Have mercy upon me and deliver me because I've got an enemy and he's bigger than me. And if you don't help me, I'm in big trouble. Me and my family will be destroyed. And so he entrusts himself into God's care. And so we see that faith does not sort of passively, passively rely on God. Okay? It's, it's not the idea that I need to, don't need to worry about this stuff, don't need to think about this stuff, I just need to keep moving, you know? But it pauses and it stops and it prays. That is, that's one of the, the, the ways that, the, of escape routes that God has planned for us to take the path of prayer in the midst of some temptations. It's an active relying upon him. An active crying out upon him, uh, toward him. Okay? And so, as we look at this passage, we see, well, if we look farther on too, the consequences of his fear were fairly big. But the consequences of his faith were even bigger. Because they engaged the assistance of the one living true God. So every one of us, every Christian in this room, will struggle with fear. We will struggle with the fear of man, what people think about us, what they say about us, how they treat us. And that fear can cloud our minds, and we can make regrettable decisions. But God's grace to those who believe is greater. He is faithful even when we're not. He will keep his promises even when we botch our responsibilities. When faced with fear, God says, trust me. And that trust is to be expressed in prayer. It isn't a question of how much faith you have. It's a question of who you trust. Is it yourself? Which means you're in big, big trouble. Some other person just kind of like you, but maybe smarter, which means you're still in big, big trouble. Or is it Jesus Christ, who's conquered death? Whose help would you really want? Really? 
Let's pray. Father, all of us can point to those moments when we have given in to fear. And for some people in this room, that is a present reality. They are tempted by fear even now. Our lives are marked by those bad decisions we have made and those consequences we have made because of fear and unbelief. So I ask that your Spirit would be at work in us so that our faith, no matter how small, would prevail by turning to you in prayer. That we would recognize prayer as one of those means of escape from temptation. It is one of the ways that you have provided for us to escape the temptations that are produced particularly by fear. And we ask this that we might have a fuller experience of our salvation in Jesus Christ, that we might thereby bring you more glory. And we ask this in the name of Jesus who loved us and who gave himself up for us. Amen.